Welcome. We're glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. These weeks leading up to Christ's birth, we're taking a look at all of the miraculous events that surround the Christmas story. Christmas is the day that we are reminded that God is with us. It's the day we remember that God is in the birth of a baby, not born in the halls of power or into a life of luxury, but in an old barn to an unwed teen. The good news of Christmas is that God dwelt among us in the most unexpected way, and the world has never been the same. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. We um, want to begin our time in the Word with uh, these deep, great words from a dude named William Shakespeare as he describes Advent. Some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planets strike, no fairy takes, no witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. So hallowed. So gracious is the time. Those are the words, those are the adjectives we want for this season we call Advent. Hallowed, set apart, deep, different, mysterious, enchanted, and gracious, love, mercy, other-centered living during this time we know as Advent. The problem is those words right now are really hard to keep hold of. Hallowed and gracious for a number of reasons. One, one, we're just not wired toward those words very well. No matter what your origin story is, and by the way, everyone believes a story about origins, and we've never lived a moment of our life without faith in a story. Some believe in a creator where God spoke things into existence. We lived in that for a time in our parents, Adam and Eve, but after a time, we said, God, thanks, but no thanks. I'd like to take life back into my own hands. And in that moment, the earth broke and the human heart curved in on itself, and we have have become since then very self-driven creatures. Or some of us in this room might believe in an evolutionary kind of theory where human life began millions of years ago on the plains of Africa. And the whole way to exist was to keep one eye on what you had to do that day and the other eye on the horizon for any predators that might be lurking to to come after you. Either way, you end up in the same place, right? A self-preserving, self-driven life. That is, in other words, we are prone to the negative. There are studies that neuroscientists have done on the human brain that they figured out now that a negative human experience takes three seconds to be imprinted on the brain, three seconds. A positive human experience takes 14 seconds to be imprinted on the brain. We are bent towards the broken. We are bent towards the negative. And that makes it hard to grab hallowed and gracious. I think the other contributing factors to making a hard are like a 24-7 new digital news cycle that is very adept at keeping us looking on the horizon for threats. And they make their business plan stirring up anger, stirring up fear, selling product to keep us all angry and threatened. That's the news. That's the news cycle. I think another contributing factor is this pandemic. 
How, how can we put it? We are threadbare weary in our soul and in our psyche for what this pandemic has taken, what this cost us, what it's, uh, we've had to make our children do, what we've had to live through ourselves. We, we are weary and tired of the last two years of living. I think lastly, makes it hard to grab hallowed and gracious is Christmas, right? Christmas is a time we all want that depth, but it's also a time when our losses are magnified. We realize what we don't have any longer. We realize who's no longer with us. We realize the losses that we've experienced. They're like heightened during this time. That's why the preaching team at Waterstone, we've decided this year for Advent Sunday weekends to go to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to preach our way from Luke 1 through all the way through Luke 2. And the, the purpose is going to be looking at each story panel and finding the common theme throughout the Advent story panels. Great joy. We want to pursue the great joy in the birth of Jesus Christ. And we hope and we pray and we believe that seeing and hearing that great joy each weekend will help us to have a depth of Advent featuring hallowed and gracious. Let's read the first story. It's a story about an old couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'll read it. You follow along. It'll be on the screens or you can follow in your Bible or on your phone. What I'd like to invite you to do is just uh, like set your imagination to be in this story. So whether you're like in the crowd outside the temple waiting for Zechariah to come out after he gives the evening incense offering, or whether you want to be uh, a, a fly in the wall in the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth as they try to absorb what's about to happen to them. Put yourself in this story. Imagine what you would see. So let's read Luke 1 verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the Lord, how can I be sure of this? And if I could interject, please. That's a very kind translation. In the Greek, Zechariah literally says, prove it. I am an old man, and if I could interject, notice how kind he is to his wife. And my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this news, and now you will be silent. And if I could interject, we know it's not only that he becomes silent, but he also becomes unable to hear, because later on in the story, when Elizabeth and the people try to talk to him, they have to do sign language to talk to him. So he's deaf, and he can't speak. And now you will be silent, and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The word of the Lord. Now, I want to start at the 30,000 foot level with this story. I want to start with Luke's first words uh, in the new era of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, this biography of Jesus, Luke's first words are in the days of Herod. I want us to get a historical context for what's going to happen. Herod was a puppet ruler assigned by Rome to rule over this tiny, actually troublesome nation called Israel. What you need to know is that it had been 400 years since Israel had heard anything from God. Four, imagine that. Go from here back to 1620 in Plymouth Rock, right? 400 years. Not a word, not a prophet, not a book from God. In fact, it's interesting, I always think, to take a moment and look at the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is how the first testament ends. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Period. End. Now, the only, I mean, do you agree with me? That's a bit troublesome. It seems unfinished. The only way it makes sense is if there might be a sequel. And we know there is. And in fact, with these very first words, Luke wants us to know that where it's picking up is the exact place where Malachi left off. A prophet Elijah and children and parents and the generations being healed by this truth that the prophet shares. But what I think is important for us to realize is that when Malachi writes this, Elijah's been dead 300 years. And then when Malachi puts the period on that sentence, Israel does not hear from God for 400 years. 
silence. Let me ask you, how are you with silence? You ever been in like a small group and people are praying and then there's this long, 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 long pause and you about to crawl, jump out of your skin and say, somebody finish, somebody pray. We, we don't like silence. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a silent treatment? I read about a couple, young in their marriage, who had had just an amazingly good argument and they reached the silent treatment phase of the argument. The husband, a notorious late sleeper, had to get up early for a business trip. And so he wrote a note and left it by his wife's, on his wife's knife stand, please wake me up at 5 a.m. So he goes to sleep, and as was common, he overs- didn't hear his alarm and overslept. He gets up the next morning at 9 a.m., Misses his flight, misses everything. He is furious. He picks up his phone to call his wife when he notices a note there on his nightstand next to his phone. It's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) No one likes to be on the receiving end of the silent treatment, especially when you think you're getting the silent treatment from God. That's tough. It's tough because we tend to equate silence with aggression, right? Passive aggression or or sulking or stewing in anger. Or we tend to equate silence with inactivity, like nothing's happening. Come on. Neither of those could be true of God in this 400 years of silence. Let me unpack what I mean. 356 B.C., A man, you may have heard of him, by the name of Alexander the Great, rises to power in the Greek Empire. This was prophesied, by the way, 600 years earlier by the prophet Daniel. Alexander the Great had the largest landmass of any previous empire, massive landmass under his rule. And he wasn't even 30 years old. And he had the foresight to begin to shape not only lands together and cobbled together, but culture throughout this whole uh, empire. You know how he did it? His primary way of doing it was that in every village and city which he would take over, he would begin construction of libraries. He would use these libraries to shape culture to Greek and to teach every citizen in this massive land to read a common language. So when Jesus comes, he dies, he ascends to heaven, his mission complete. He has these biographies of him written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He has these organizing letters that we call epistles in the early church written to launch the church. And by the way, do you know what language they're written in? Greek. And in the silence, God is preparing the world for the arrival of his son. And then Greek falls, Greece falls, and Roman takes over. And what were the Romans known for? Roads, bridges, aqueducts. In the Roman Empire at its zenith, you could travel from Spain in the west, India in the east, Africa in the south. Massive, massive uh, area. The known world, actually, with roads going everywhere and safe roads. The Pax Romana, the military police of Rome, kept transportation safer than at any previous time in history. 
And in the silence, God is preparing the world for the arrival of his son. And this Herod dude that I mentioned earlier, a scoundrel, a a prideful, arrogant man, he had a hobby. He liked to build things, not like small things, big things. He built the temple in Jerusalem, rebuilt it. It was a wonder in the ancient world. And in the silence, God is preparing his community to again be a worshiping community such that when these events of Christmas began to happen, they would be told and talked about among this massive Jewish community in Jerusalem. And in the silence, God is preparing Israel for their king. That's the 30,000 foot view. In the silence, God is at work to fulfill his promises. Now let's go to the temple, shall we? Let's see Zechariah. Do you know that Josephus tells us there are 18,000 priests and Levites? We would probably equate that today to church staff. There was a church staff in Israel of 18,000 in Galilee and Judea, thousands and thousands of uh, staffing to run this temple in Jerusalem and all of its accompanying ministries. Now, the way it worked in Zechariah's day that as the priest, you would work a week in the spring where you'd have to go to Jerusalem and do your assigned duties and you'd do the same in the fall. It was a good gig. You work two weeks a year. Much like today, pastors only have to work on Sundays. It's equivalent and it's good. (laughs) Now, when he got there, you heard in the text that they, they drew lots, right? And they had to assign this specific honor of lighting the evening incense, which was next to the most holy place. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity. In fact, many priests never received this honor by lot. But Zechariah got it. Here's his moment. He's probably on his face, prone. He's probably praying for his country, for his people, when all of a sudden he notices something up to the right of the altar, and it's an angel, and he's scared to death. And the angel says, Zechariah, I have heard your petition. Your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and you will name him John. Now, I just want to freeze frame and stop right here for one quick thing. This is free. One of the things you will see again and again and again in the Christmas story panels is the presence of angels. One of the things Christmas challenges you to do is to check your worldview. There's one or two kinds of worldviews here in the room. The one worldview is that the worldview of the enlightenment, which is if there is a God, he's very distant and he doesn't interfere with human affairs. That's the worldview, for instance, of our founding father, Thomas Jefferson, who cut out all the miracles out of the Old Testament and said, when it comes to Jesus, vintage is his stories and his wisdom. The miracles eh, eh, don't happen. Our, pro- our culture today is enlightenment in full bloom. I mean, if you think of an, a reality having angels, if you think that there may be more going on around you than what you can see or hear or touch, you're considered to be very implausible in our culture. 
You're considered to be like a child. Only children believe in fairy tales. It's time for you to grow up. I mean, you live in the days of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and the tools that we need to get joy and to get reality in our lives are politics and education and science and technology. Children read things about angels. And here comes Jesus on the scene 2,000 years later, all these Christmas stories being read around the world again and again, and these words of Jesus saying, look, if you're going to know God, you have to be what? Born again. And Jesus saying, look, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you enter as a child. What's your worldview? Did you notice that Gabriel says to Zechariah, I have heard your petition. Now think with me on that for a minute. I'm sure that Zechariah was a good priest and while he was on his face, he prayed for his people. But there must have been a thousand million times before that and they're old, years, decades before where they were on their face, Zechariah and Elizabeth, praying for a child. I have heard your petition. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived decades in silence, thinking God had not heard their prayer. They wanted a child and now they were past age. They would never have children. And Gabriel breaks into their life and says, I have heard your petition. Even in the silence, God is working to fulfill his promises. Infertility in Zechariah and Elizabeth's day was uh, truly a hardship. It was the leading cause of poverty among women because even in Israel's legal system, you could rightfully, quote unquote, divorce your wife if she couldn't give you heirs. And so women were divorced and left uh, with no safety net. It was uh, also viewed in that culture that if you were a woman who could not conceive, there was something spiritually wrong with you. It was your fault. Can you imagine the pain and what Elizabeth calls the disgrace that she lived with within her community? And Gabriel says, I have heard your petition. Folks, we realize when we stand up here and preach week after week, that sitting in this room, there's enough pain to silence the heavens. Some of you in this room have wanted children and either have not been able to conceive or you have been just pounded with miscarriage. One out of every four pregnancy ends in miscarriage. We can imagine the silence of that pain that we never know that sits in this room week after week. We can imagine the stories of you parents who have teenagers now who are making decisions that you know will wound them for the rest of their life. And you are scared to death for what may become. We know there are others in this room who are single and you've lived the last two to three days with a lump in your throat that won't go away because you realize again what's coming and how lonely, how lonely you're going to be these next few weeks. 
And we realize that in this room week after week, there are those who've made wrong and hard decisions and you've kind of wrecked some relationships, wrecked your future a little bit and you sit here and you think, what was I thinking? And the regret's about to swallow you. We stand up here and we preach to this room. The pain is reeling. A good friend of mine recommended a book to me called Prayers in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. She describes her church community having to live through the tragic loss of a three-year-old toddler. The pastor gets up and he says to the congregation, God cannot be trusted to keep bad things from happening to you. That comment jolted them as it's jolted me, and I think you have to think about it for a while, don't you? God cannot be trusted to keep bad things from happening to us. I think he's right. Do you know why? Because that was never the promise. God never and nowhere promises that he will keep bad things from coming into your life. Do you know what he does promise? He promises that when they come, he will be with you and he won't leave you. And he promises that there will come a moment when you are delivered from the badness of this life and you enter a new realm in a face-to-face relationship with God and a promise that he will come again and he will make everything sad come untrue. Those are the promises. And in the silence of your life, God is at work to fulfill his promises to you. And there's the joy of Advent. You know, (laughs) there's a lot of good conversations in the Bible. I wish the conversation that Zechariah and Elizabeth had when he comes home from his temple duty, I wish that one would have been in the Bible, right? Zechariah, can't speak, can't hear, has to communicate, asks for a wax tablet. He writes on it what happened, and Elizabeth reads it and said, the angel said, what? And you want to go do what, old man? I wish that conversation was in the scriptures. Come with me now to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John the Baptist is born. Eight days later, as was the custom in the Jewish culture, they would circumcise the male child and they would have a naming ceremony. And you go on to read in Luke chapter 1 that the community gathers around and Elizabeth is in unspeakable joy. And they ask her, what are you going to name your boy? What are you going to name him? And she says, John. And they go, John? There's no one on Ancestry.com in your lineage that has the name John. What do you mean, John? And they don't believe her. And so they go to Zechariah, who still at this point can't hear, can't speak. He asks for a wax tablet. His name is John. Do you know what the name John means? A naming ceremony? God is gracious. Aren't you glad that they didn't name him Little Zach? 
Nothing against Zach's out there. But John means God is gracious. And you see, going against culture, going against everything they knew in their lives, they knew they were in a new era of joy. And that now the way to relate to God was no longer through keeping the law, no longer through animal sacrifices, no longer it depending on you. Now it depends on someone else, Jesus. This one who comes from heaven, takes on a human body, lives the life I should have lived dies the death I should have died so that we can be forgiven and declared righteous in God's sight. Salvation no longer depends on you or me. It depends on God and God loves freely. And so now it's grace. It's all grace. It's grace. God's grace to us at Christmas in giving us his son so that we can know God, grace. Zechariah, when he says the name John, his mouth is opened and the Holy Spirit comes on him and he starts to sing over his little son. Can you imagine? Can you see it? We don't have time to read the whole song. Perhaps you could read it later, but there are two metaphors in the song that I want to highlight and that will call us to the communion table now this morning. The first metaphor, he says, my son John will prepare the way for the one who is the horn of salvation. In ancient times, a cattle or steer's horn was a symbol of strength, of kingdom, of established of power, of endurance, the horn of salvation. In other words, when Zechariah sings over his son, he says it's because John will be the one to bring Jesus who will be the strength of our life. Jesus, you know, like you, I'm so tired of this pandemic, but I wanna, actually kind of challenge you a little bit this morning to, to maybe see the pandemic in a new frame, to maybe rope up to a higher look on it. Do you know what this pandemic also is? Is an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to see all those things in life that we've not been able to do much the last two years, travel, School's changed, work's changed, everything's changed. We've had an opportunity to actually look through a new frame and evaluate everything in our lives and then ask the question, was my former view of whatever that is, work, school, life, was it bringing me closer to Jesus or was it getting in the way of his joy? This pandemic is an opportunity for us to evaluate the things in our life that we thought would bring us joy, but now know they haven't. And we're always back to the fundamental Christian question, right? Is Jesus enough? The second metaphor, the horn of salvation, Jesus is our strength. The second is that Jesus is the rising sun of mercy. We say this a lot around Waterstone. We said it a lot during our previous series on 1 John. 
that because of the cross, because Jesus came for us, he died in our place and took our sins on himself so that we can be forgiven and have the fitness to live with God forever in his presence. His love, that's his love. And he can't say that he loves us any more than he's already said through the cross. In other words, God cannot love you any more than he already does. So in Jesus, our strength, we have a promised future. But in this rising sun of love, we have a cherished past where always God is telling us he loves us. Again, in this book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison warns, she has this great metaphor for understanding the love of God. She says, sometimes we think the love of God is like day and night and we're hot and we're cold and we're busy and then we're inactive. And sometimes we're loving and sometimes we're not. With us, it's alternating currents, right? God's love, she says, is like the speed of light. There's no darkness and it's always coming at you. Always, always, always. God love is pursuing you. There, sisters and brothers and friends, is the joy that in the silence, God is always at work to fulfill his promises. And he promises us a future that even though the worst happens to us, we get to live with God. And he promises from a past that he is always speed of light coming at us to say, I love you. I love you. I love you. So as we come now to the table, I'd invite you to take the elements of communion. And I want to just... Uh, have a brief minute of prayer and then we'll partake of the elements. So let's pray together. I want to just read a couple of things and guide us through this moment. I don't know if you're a regular at Waterstone. I don't know if you're a guest watching online. I don't know. But I believe God has you here for these questions. Do you believe God is able to step into your life with joy where there has been silence and disappointment. That's what Christmas really means for each of us. What Elizabeth said in verse 25 is true for each of us. Because God sent his son, he's looked with favor on us to take away our disgrace. Do you believe that? Tell God you do. Tell him you do right now. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know how hopeless my situation feels. You're right. I don't, no one else does except the one who's come from heaven to walk in your shoes, to suffer, and die, Jesus. And he's calling you now to sing a song of faith. Trust him. Jesus is the strength of life. It doesn't depend on you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've been through. He knows how bleak it looks. But he is the rising son of mercy who went to the cross to bear every sorrow and every sin 
and every wound. He now says to you, all is forgiven. All is resurrection. All is joy. <laughs>